We are in John's Gospel, John's Gospel chapter 16, and we're going to, Lord willing, be considering verses 12 to 24. John's Gospel chapter 16, beginning at verse 12 as we continue our series. If you are not with us, usually we are in the thick of things in the Upper Room Discourse, and we come to verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let us ask God to bless his word read and preached. Our Father, please bless us now as we hear. Let us not hear idly or to no gain, but rather let us gain much as the word of God swells up into us with eternal life and knowledge of the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Yesterday I was able to uh, do a wedding, uh, one of 243 weddings this year, Uh, and uh, Dylan, he's coming back next week, I have to do his wedding, and he's complicating my life by giving me a text to preach on and so on. But this wedding was nice because I got to choose the text, and uh, I thought it was a good sermon. Uh, and my wife did too, actually. And the young man who got married, Jonas Codling, came up to me after the festivities of the wedding, and we had our sort of little chat just about life, and he says, you know, I have no idea what you preached on. And I said, I said, listen, I don't really preach for the people getting married. I know they are not in a state to be able to hear anything. Their emotions are so completely out of 
whack that they can't hear. He says, I remember you saying something about Manchester City, but that was about it. <laughs> and you could actually take that and piece together the whole sermon, I think, uh, because I would never use an illustration that had no direct relevance to a sermon. Yeah, some of you <laughs> shaking your heads. There's something about when our emotions are out of whack, it's hard to receive and understand and take in everything. And that goes for joy as well as grief. You can be so overcome with grief, you can't hear anything. You can be so overcome with joy, you can't really hear anything. The disciples are overcome with grief. And so a question that maybe doesn't immediately stick out, but it's one that I think the text eventually draws us into is this. How did they in the upper room remember every word that Jesus had said to them and were able to write this down maybe decades in the case of John after the fact of the words were spoken? And that's a fair question. Maybe you think, oh, well, listen, you know, those are the types of questions liberals ask. Um, let me assure you, these are questions that are worth asking. And what is interesting about the Scriptures is that a lot of questions we ask about Certain theological truths are answered by the Scriptures. So you could go to Romans chapter 9 and read about God's purpose in election, and a lot of the usual uh, responses by people, for Paul uh, speaks of them, uh, he anticipates. And he has a dialogue that is, is basically not made up, but a dialogue that is uh, what people ask. If this is true, then what about this? Well, what about this? And so Paul's answering the same thing with how to interpret the Bible. How do you interpret the Bible? Do we come up with ways to interpret the Bible? No, we actually look at the ways the Scriptures interpret the Bible and we develop those truths. When Jesus says that the Scriptures all speak about Him, we have to then understand that the Scriptures must therefore speak about Him in our interpretation. Now, what does that have to do with what he is saying here? Well, Jesus says to the disciples, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And I think this is quite obviously a case that there would be a lot more revelation to come, but they can't possibly take it all in. It's amazing what he does actually say to them, by the way, but he doesn't tell them everything. So do you think John was in any state to be able to hear Jesus in the upper room, speak to him everything in the book of Revelation. Can you imagine if Jesus just said, oh, by the way, John, I'm going to read to you now the book of Revelation. Take this all down. John would have probably fallen down. He did fall down as though dead, actually, when he heard it on the island of Patmos later. So the pur purpose of what Jesus is saying here is there's only so much any human being can take in. For those pastors who preach our sermons. You can only take so much in. And so he says, you cannot bear them now. However, in this uh, fifth and final paraclete section, we find out that while Jesus may not have explicitly ever written a book, there is a sense in which he has. What do I mean by that? Well, notice the words. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, the Spirit actually takes on the identical role as Christ does. When Jesus ministering on earth, he never says, I speak on my own authority. He doesn't say, these are my own words. 
he will in fact say quite the opposite. I do not speak on my own authority. I only speak the words the Father has given to me. And lo and behold, what does he say about the Spirit now? The Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority, but rather he will speak things that come from the hand of the Father through Christ to the church. And whatever he hears, that is the Spirit, he will speak and he will guide the disciples into all truth. In other words, the writing of the Gospels, the writing of the New Testament, how is it that they were able to remember all of these words? How is it that they were able to pen all of these words down? And the answer is quite simple. You either believe in a robust doctrine of the Holy Spirit that guides the apostles into writing down the very words of God, or you think, well, these guys just made this all up. And what we find is that the Scriptures do not hide from us the fact that these are the very words of God. That God is breathing out. There's a passage in 2 Timothy 3.16 and some older translations have all Scripture is inspired. And that's actually incorrect in a certain sense. Rather, it should be all Scripture is God-breathed. Theopneustos. God is breathing out through these apostles, his own words. And you say, well, Mark, that's all well and good, but that's speaking about the Old Testament Scriptures. But actually, even the New Testament gives us the idea that the New Testament Scriptures are Scriptures. They are the Word of God. So Peter will talk about Paul and say, well, the Apostle Paul, he's written to you about these things. He speaks in his letters some things that uh, the ignorant and unstable uh, twist to their own destruction because they are hard to understand. But then he says, they do this, the unstable, they twist the Scriptures to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. So he's basically saying they twist Paul's Scriptures as they do the other Scriptures. Now what's interesting is Paul understood that he was writing Scriptures too that he was inspired by God, breathing out God's word. So in 1 Timothy 5.18, he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And you say, well, hang on now, Mark. I know my Old Testament inside and out. I was reading Deuteronomy last night, preparing for the sermon today because I knew you'd be preaching on this verse eventually. That's the Old Testament. But then the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and... The laborer deserves his wages, which is actually a quote from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. In other words, the New Testament authors believed that what they were writing were the Scriptures, the words of God being breathed out. And so the role of the Spirit here is to guide them into all truth, to bring to remembrance everything that Christ is going to say to the church that they could not bear at that point. And so what is the purpose of the New Testament? It is to glorify Christ. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and give it to you. All that the Father has is mine. So whatever the Father speaks, He speaks to Christ. Whatever Christ speaks, He speaks through the Spirit to the church. Now, you see, that's very important because some of you may have red-letter Bibles. Uh, if I can make the caveat that uh, you do not need to burn your red-letter Bibles, 
Uh, you don't even need to get angry with the publisher and write a letter over the red-letter Bibles. And with those caveats out the way, let me just say it is theologically incorrect to have a red-letter Bible. If what is being said here is true, every word you have in your Bible is actually from the mouth of Christ. Every word. You either have every letter that's read or no letters that are read. Because everything that you have in your hands that is from God has been given by the Father to Jesus Christ and has now been penned through the work of the Spirit by the apostles. Everything glorifies Christ. Another way of putting this is that if a rabbi were to walk in right now and sit down and by the end of the sermon say amen, that would be a very bad sermon or he was converted during the sermon. You cannot say amen to a Christian sermon unless you are a Christian. Everything speaks of Christ. Every road in England eventually leads to London. Every passage in God's Word eventually leads to Christ. And that's no less true with the Old Testament as it is with the New. As Augustine said, the New Testament is in the Old concealed. The Old Testament is in the New revealed. And everything glorifies Christ. Now, in light of this, he does acknowledge their grief in verse 16. A little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. What does he mean by this? Does he uh, speak in riddles, or is this fairly clear? I think the most common sense interpretation of this is the idea that in light of the context, because he speaks of grief and joy, he's likely speaking about the fact that in a little while you will no longer see me because I will be crucified, I will be buried, and you will be filled with grief. However, since I will be raised again from the dead, you will see me and you will be filled with joy. And they don't really understand this. He knows they don't understand this, so he presses them on it. But that's the most common sense interpretation. Some have said, well, this may be they will uh, see him, then he will go to be with the Father, but then when they die, they will see him again. That may be derivatively true, but it's not what's being said here. It may also mean that we will see him, and then the second coming, we will see him again, and then we'll be filled with joy. That also may be true, but that's not what I think is being said here. He's speaking about his death and resurrection. And he's speaking in a way that's quite vivid. Notice the language he uses in verse 21. After he tells them they will leap, weep and lament, the world will rejoice, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. He uses the example of a woman giving birth. And she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, you may wonder, why is he using this? Is this just an illustration that he grabbed out of nowhere? And the truth is, this is rooted in the Old Testament. In various places, such as Isaiah chapter 26, you can read verse 19 and onwards, there's the idea that the people of God are likened during a time of sorrow and suffering to a woman who is going to give birth. And so Israel is this woman. And Jesus is actually, I believe, the child that Israel gives birth to the Messiah who comes from the line of David. And he is therefore called in the New Testament in many places the firstborn from 
the dead. In fact, who was the first person ever born? From one perspective, it was Jesus Christ. The first person ever born into resurrection life is Jesus Christ. Whether in Romans chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, whether in Revelation 1, 5, or Romans 8, 29, He's called the firstborn from among the dead. And so here, Israel is weeping, lamenting, waiting for the Messiah, and the Messiah comes. He is the one born into the world. He is the one raised from the dead. And then when they see that, they will rejoice and they will share in that new birth. And then all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, I remember new birth goes way back to John chapter 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher, you don't know this? Because he should have known this. There needs to be a new birth. There needs to be resurrection life. And so Jesus is reaffirming that here. Now this plays out in the Gospels wondrously. In fact, if you go to the Gospels, at the empty tomb, you see this idea where there was grief turned to joy. So, for example, in Mark chapter 16, verse 10, Mary, she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. So what happened when Jesus died? It's a present active participle. They didn't just stay upset for an hour or two. They were in a period of grief. They were mourning. They were weeping. They were lamenting. But she goes and tells them. So Matthew tells us in chapter 28, verse 8, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And they ran and they told the disciples. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 20, After he said this, this is Jesus, he showed them his hands and sighed. What is the response of the disciples who we're told in Mark's gospel were weeping and lamenting, we're told here the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. What is the basic point of what Jesus is trying to tell them? He's trying to illustrate a fundamental truth of how God treats His children. And what is that? God will turn your grief into joy. That is what God does. There is no one who is a true Christian here who is exempt from that principle of grief being turned into joy. It's how God acts. And we see this in various ways. And it's what makes the joy joyful is the grief. It's the trouble. I went away this week with uh, Langley Christian Girls High School soccer team to Provincials to Victoria. 20 girls, me and the athletic director, first night. Grief, room assignments, girls upset because they're not in this room, in that room, and I love these girls. I promise you I love these girls, but never again. <laughs> Unless there were like five moms starting out the trip with me. Cell phone collection. Girls faking being asleep in their bedroom with the lights off so that they don't have to hand over their cell phones. I could go on and on. And we haven't even got to the field. And my daughter's on the team, and bless her heart, she's not here to defend herself. But she was there at 9 a.m. And there's points where she's playing, she's then sitting on the bench, and 
she's, I said, Katie, you need to go on. No, I'm not going on. This team's way too good. No, I can't do it, Dad. No. Then minutes later, oh, Dad, uh, Laura's here. That's her aunt. Grandma's here. Papa's here. They're all here, and I'm not playing. I need to go on. So at times, she's on the bench. She's upset. She's off to the bathroom. She's so stressed out. Her back is hurting. I mean, all sorts of problems, but then goes onto the field and scores the most amazing goal I've ever seen. I could not believe she scored this goal. Nobody could believe this goal was scored. And she's pumping her fists, I'm high-fiving, and it was just so joyful. Later that day, lamentation, this girl said something, and this girl, and it. <laughs> Next day, I have to leave to go to a wedding. They're playing in a big game for a medal, bronze medal. It's amazing, we got that far, amazing, we got to that. I'm sitting in the special lounge on BC Ferries. They don't have a buffet anymore, so I've got to sit in that Sea West lounge. You pay $15 for a bit of peace and quiet, a few coffees, a whale, orcas jumping up, life is good. My phone text blows up. Katie's just scored an amazing goal. I'm fist pumping in this room on my own, looking at a whale, thinking life cannot get any better. And you go through the downs and the ups, and it's what makes the joy joyful is the pain and agony. And there was pain and agony. And that's how God treats His children in their lives. He goes right back to Abraham. Abraham, can you imagine the sorrow and the grief and the pain of walking his only son, Isaac, to sacrifice him? But what was the joy like when the angel of the Lord said, do not lay a hand on the boy? He received him as though back from the dead. That's what the author of Hebrews says. You get to Jacob and Joseph, and Joseph was basically killed as it were. In fact, Jacob understood his coat which had been torn to pieces. And what does Jacob say? Without doubt, my son has been torn to pieces. Grief and lamentation. And then his son is raised from the dead, basically. And he rejoices. What about Mary? We read Psalm 30 earlier. That's David. What about Mary at the cross? Grief and lamentation. The worst thing she could imagine was happening before her very eyes. The Lord of glory, Jesus, her son, was being crucified, publicly shamed and ridiculed and mocked. And days later would be raised again from the dead. God took her grief and turned it to joy. He did it with Moses, with David, with Jacob, with Joseph, with Abraham, and He will do it with you. Jacob's was the course of many years. Abraham's was ours. God delights to turn our grief into joys. That's why Paul will say, in 2 Corinthians 4.8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. If you understand everything God is doing in your life, you are understanding nothing. There are times you will not understand what God is doing. There are times where your grief will cause you to not have a clue why this is happening. And all you can cling to is the promise that God always turns our griefs to joy. He did it in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He does it in our lives. And so Jesus says here, 
that they can never take the joy that I give to you from you. You will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That's the glory of the Gospel. Once you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, your joy can never be taken from you because you know that He is the firstborn among many brothers, that you share in that resurrection life, and that one day your grief will be turned to joy. Your grief may go on for many years. It may be months, it may be days, it may be hours. You will have grief in this world, but you have been promised joy unspeakable. And that's how God treats those whom He loves. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that You will turn our griefs to joy as You have promised. We will never fathom why, how, or the depth of our griefs, but we will fathom one day that You have done all things well and that You will turn this all to joy. As You have done for others, so do for us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.